Hello, everyone. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, we've seen humanity undergo transformational shifts that are so impactful, they define entire ages. Just recently, you've lived through the information age, and what an incredible journey it's been. Now, think about this. You could be right now in the midst of another monumental shift, the transformation into the Age of Infinite. We're talking about an age that transcends the concept of scarcity and abundance. It introduces a lifestyle rich with infinite possibilities, enabling new paradigm shifting thinking that comes from the moon and earth as what we call mirth. This synergy will create a new ecosystem and a new economic model, propelling us into an era of infinite possibilities. If that sounds like a plot for an extraordinary sci-fi story, it is, but it's what we're working on and it's going to unfold right before your lifetime. This podcast is brought to you by the Project Moon Hunt Foundation, where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut we happen to be named by NASA, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, then to turn those innovations and the paradigm-shifting thinking from the endeavor back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. For more information, visit our website at www.projectmoonhut.org, where you can check out our 40-year plan, our work, and we just launched just put on yesterday, the Project Moon Hut classification system. It is unbelievably dynamic. It shifts, it turns, it moves. If you're on a small screen or mobile, it doesn't show up as well. It, it's good, but it doesn't do what it could if you're on a larger screen. And if you don't see it on the larger screen, hit F11 for full screen, meaning you're a laptop, and you will see that it's incredible. So check that out. We are a nonprofit, so if you ever consider making a donation, in the top right-hand corner, it says donate. Every bit counts for us. So let's dive into the podcast. The title for today is Science in Space Matters. And today we have with us Ken Saban. Hi, Ken. Hi. <laughs> okay. Uh, so as always, we do a very, very brief bio. Ken is the chief science officer at Redwire. He had a 20-year legacy in the farm industry at firms such as Eli Lilly. At Redwire, he's working on projects that include protein crystal growth, product development for the International Space Station, development of 3D bioprinter as part of the biofabrication facility, and building a consortium. He's also achieved a PhD in chemistry. Now, this has been added just recently for everybody. I have no clue what Ken is going to talk about. Everybody thinks that I've already seen his outline. I understand the notes. We've had the discussion about it. We have had nothing. Ken and I have an initial call. We spent about an, uh, some time creating a title, and that's all I know. So I'm on this journey with you. And I've said that because people have thought countless times they've emailed and said, wow, you guys must have talked a lot. No, we haven't. So Ken, let's get started. Do you have an outline or a bullet point set for us? I do. You ready? Okay. Can I? I am ready, pen in hand. So I'm going to start just by saying a little bit more about my background, because I think it's important to help everybody relate to me and to this experience. Okay. Um, so number one is your is background. My background. Number two? I'm going to talk about and describe a definition for science in space. Okay, uh, science in space. Number three. I'm going to talk about why science in space is different or special. Ah. 
is different or special. That's a long one. Okay, next. And to talk about who the players are in getting science and space done. Okay, next. I'm going to talk about what the goals of doing science and space are. Okay. And, more. and then I'm going to talk about where it's leading, what this means to us. Okay, what this means to us. Is there another one? I'm just going to conclude at that point. Okay, so we'll call it conclusion and a discussion. Okay, fantastic. So let's start off with your background. And as, as I've shared, I did some research on you, looked you up a little bit, but you were highly recommended by a friend. Uh, I think it was, wasn't it Yossi Amin yes. who recommended yes. you? Yossi Amin, who did one of the podcasts earlier. So I, I, trust that I trust him completely, and he's a part of Project Moon Hut. So let's, let's move this forward. So I am not a special person. I'm not like a NASA. I'm not a NASA guy. You know, I did not, I'm not an engineer. Um, I didn't grow up okay. doing stuff in space. I'm really, I'm, I'm from industry. I got a degree in chemistry and went to work in the pharmaceutical industry. And, um, uh, you know, like maybe many people, I am a fan of what NASA does. And, but I was always kind of an outsider. And I think that is how I always thought it had to be. That's what it was. There were, a small group of people who worked in the enclave of NASA. And then there was everybody else who just sort of watched from the outside. And um, uh, I got a, a crazy phone call from this woman who was, you know, um, telling me that I could do science in space. And I had no idea what it meant. I actually I didn't understand that we had a space station. I thought we were still flying space shuttles. This is like back in 2013. <laughs> and... Um, but it, it sent me down this odd journey, a career change and uh, a change in the way I think about uh, what the possibilities are. I think that's the, the key piece of it is that it opened like a whole new world for me. And as I'll describe to you, it's changed the way I think about science in a general sense. So um, the, the key element of this is, and I'm going to talk about this more, is that uh, normal people are starting to participate in this endeavor of us taking, truly taking steps out into space. And it's everyday people who are stepping up and doing their part to participate. So it's kind of an exciting thing. Well, so, no, no, no. The, yeah, I, uh, you've watched two of the videos, the introductory videos, yeah. and I don't know if you've kind of gotten from the conversation is I am not a space person. 2014 showed up at uh, at an event, started speaking to the team at NASA, knew nothing about space, if you want to use that term, which is it's the geography of space. And I didn't know the industry. And next thing you know, there's this whole Project Moon Hut that's grown out of it. So I would say you're 2013, I'm 2014. I don't have a background like engineering. My, my background is a biology major and a psychology major dual. So we're very similar. And we're engaged in something very, not, I would say similar, but the similar geography. So that's great. That's fa fabulous. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I think if we, 
took the time, we could go back and look at the events that were happening in the background that led to this kind of an inflection point. Because I think we are not alone, right? I think there's a lot of other people who around the same time will say 2013 through 2017, where things started to change. And we'll talk, I'll talk a little bit about um, some aspects of that. But I think there, there was a, a, a shift and in the future, people will look back and see just how impactful it was. Maybe not a specific event, but a series of events that led us in this direction. So I, 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 because we're here, we're talking about it right now, I do want to ask about it because I, in my work, the work that we're doing in Project Moon Hut and my work that I've done, I have found that not as many people as I thought we're engaged in space. There's a lot of enthusiasts, yeah. closet enthusiasts. But when I say to them, have you ever donated? Have you ever participated? Have you ever worked in? Have you ever purchased? Have you ever this? Well, I make scale models. Okay, no, no. You go to movies. Great. I, I, that's not what I'm asking. Are you involved? And then I traveled back to even landing on the moon. There were a, there were a lot of challenges. A lot of people didn't care. They were more concerned with what was going on on Earth. So I'd like to know why you think 2013, 2017 were so powerful because I'm, I don't have that. I think there were uh, three general events that occurred. The first was um, a change in policy during the Obama administration and, you know, leading out of um, previous uh, presidential administrations that changed the way uh, we could engage, right? They were, they were opening up beyond NASA to get kind of private industry engaged in doing some of the things that had always traditionally been a NASA-only uh, endeavor. So, so, the outs so you're saying the outsourcing of activities outsourcing, instead yes. of doing it all? Yeah, I would say okay. you're so, even you know specifically um, doing resupply contracts for um, a space station. That was probably one of the biggest. Okay, you know, I would agree with that because that was a major policy shift, and we've had uh, we've had former administrators on the program too. So yes, there has been a shift there. I would agree, and the resupply <laughs> contracts because we had now had possibilities for resupply, which we didn't That's have right. before, and it engaged a new group of people who had different um, goals. Right, they were striving for different okay. things and different approaches, which is always, I think, a, you know, a way to lead to innovation. Um, so, yep. okay. Well, the, second the second one was the um, SpaceX uh, getting that contract and uh, Elon Musk and his approach to um, so sort of space endeavors, his goals, and how it's led him to where he is. And I, uh, you know, whatever we think of him or say about him or feel. Um, his approach, not just on a technical standpoint, but um, just on a sort of a philosophical standpoint, has changed the way we are approaching uh, work in space, whether it be <clears throat> something like getting supplies to the space station, getting people to the space station, or our attitudes towards reaching out beyond space station to go to the moon and Mars. I think that he being brought in as a kind of a radical uh, thinker has changed the way we behave and the way we think about it. The, the one piece I'd add to it, he was also extremely aggressive mm. 
because there were other companies out there. There's one one of our teammates was working with Rocket Plane Kistler. They had this uh, vehicle that could take off and land and resupply. And we've got the design, some of the designs and the components of it in our database. And they ended up being partially financed by the Canadian Teachers Union or something <laughs> like that. And the United States government would not allow any foreign funds into that company. And therefore, they couldn't get some piece of those contracts. So uh, we've all seen how aggressive that Elon can be. And so that probably also played into it, that he was going to fight for something that won, and he, he was the right person to make that happen. I'm not supporting Elon. Right, I'm not right. saying anything good or bad. I'm just using an is for yes, history. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, th I think the last okay. part is, even though those two events that we just described had um, significant effect on NASA and how they operate, there are some people who are not happy about um, the the rockets and resupply contract going to an external uh, operator like that, and yep. um, and uh, money was taken from the NASA budget to to fund this, and that you know there were people who were upset. Yes. I think you'll find NASA people on both sides of that. But what I have, what I got out of that, and what I for the people I know at NASA, what they have said to me is, it really did change the way NASA thinks about its role. And in some ways, it got them to focus on things that NASA does better than anybody. They're, they're the best at it. And they do it for a bigger, um, you know, doing it for a bigger reason than just trying to make money, right? They're doing it because they want to know. They're trying to push the envelope and push science forward. And it also changed them in some aspects. They're enclaves of very um, um, economically driven aspects of of their organization. They're looking to drive small business forward and get investment into things that are happening so that in the future, um, the space station isn't totally funded by NASA, that there's external groups that are trying to make money or find other purposes for space station and they're willing to pay for it. That is a big, that's a big step. And I, um, you know, you watch some of these television shows where they make it sound like, oh yeah, that's, you know, how it's going to be in the future that a NASA is going to be making money or whatever. Um, that is not, <clears throat> you, you can't take that for granted. It was just not the way it was done. And they really have stepped up. It's really an amazing thing to see an organization like that, that I always felt, you know, they're, you know, wearing the black ties and the short sleeved white button down shirts, but it isn't like that. They are forward thinking, smart individuals who are driven to do things for the benefit of the American people, maybe the benefit of the world too, for humanity. But uh. Well, so those are two points that kind of are, are on my mind interesting. So one, there is not a dialogue as much as we believe there is for the betterment of humanity in all space. So I came in in 2014. And interesting, the way you've just framed it, there is the NASA Ames portal in uh, Silicon Valley of Palo Alto at the, uh, there's the portal at the NASA Ames facility. And the individual that ended up pulling me in was a guy by the name of Bruce Pittman, who was at the, he might've been more open to, to bringing someone like me in because his job was to help create public-private partnerships. Yeah. And so 
the entire concept of Project Moonhawk came about at a lunch, a luncheon that he and I were at. We were talking, and this is where it came from. But we then worked for about five years together. So concepts came out of it. We met every month. So yeah, I would say that that part of it, but NASA also has done a lot of things that I'm not going to say NASA is the only one because there is the European Space Agencies, the Japanese, the South African. We've had people on from all different groups around the world. But one thing that's interesting is that the NASA logo on people's T-shirts that people wear all over the world, there is no licensing fee. Anybody can produce them. So I my take is that was also a masterful decision that they're not going to make any money off the brand of the NASA logo. And that allowed the explosion of marketing from the things, the activities that were going on within that organization. So yeah, I think yeah. it's the, the uh, most familiar brand on the planet. Uh, I, I think uh, it beats out Coca-Cola, which was, I think, number two. So I, uh, I'd have I'd, I'd have to look that up. I don't know. I, I will say, though, that it was in Luxembourg in 2019. And I think I've shared this before, just yeah. so you hear this, Ken, is that uh, I was at an, I was asked to speak at an event in Luxembourg. And that's the video. You didn't watch that one. There's another one that's on. I don't know. It's not on the website either. We. I was asked and I was told there were going to be 500 people in the audience. They put on a conference, one for AI, one for another category, and one for space. And they have these three simultaneously so people can go between them and then they also have specific activities. And I was sold by the Luxembourg Space Agency that there'll be 500 people. And just before the event in that year, just before I was speaking, they law, uh, an organization, I won't mention their name, had kind of stiffed them for a lot of money. And when I showed up at that audience, take a, it was on the 50th anniversary, by the way. Guess how many people were in that audience? I'll bet you it was a thousand. 50. 50? The year before was 500. The next year was 50. Oh my gosh. And so I started the presentation, and it, it is recorded. I started the presentation by all of you sitting in this audience are saying, we're going to make it. We're going to make it because we're going to make it. Because they all they care about is space and going to space and distant galaxies and Alpha Centauri and, and going and living on Mars. And I said to them, I bet you if we went back to 1969, 1970, 1971, 1972, there were a group of people just like you sitting in the audience saying we're going to make it. What's to say, based upon the activities going on in the world today, climate change, mass extinction, conflict, what's to say in 50 years we won't be sitting in the same seats the same way? And so the expectation of that audience, and my expectation was I thought 500 people, was we have to be very careful. I think, my take, uh, that we're so focused on beyond Earth that we're the real value is mm -hmm. Earth, and our language has to change. And that is not NASA's language. It's not the European Space Agency's language. It's not all the other languages. It's still about space, and it's very exclusionary. Yes, does that make sense? No, I I totally agree with you. I um uh after I left the pharmaceutical industry, uh, I went to work for. 
uh, CASIS, the Center for the Advancement of Science and Space. It is a congressionally mandated, uh, congressionally funded through NASA, or not-for-profit organization, that uh, its purpose is to encourage industrial experts and academics and you know scientists, what have you, on Earth to do work on the space station for the benefit of humanity, for the benefit of the American people, not for exploration purposes, not to further NASA's goals. Um, and mm -hmm. it was done by Congress. Congress actually created this group and designated half of the U.S. portion of the International Space Station uh, to be a national lab, a U.S. national lab, because then they had control of it, Congress did, and they could say, hey, this right. is what yeah. it's for. And I think they felt, just like you're describing that, with all this work being done for the purpose of exploring space that most people won't benefit from the activities and all this money being spent. So they did something that would benefit the American people. And it is starting to pay off. These things take time, but you can see it's paying off in new technologies that are being brought back down to earth, new products, hopefully that are being brought back down, but also engaging a broader group of people to be a part of this next step for humanity out into space. And I'm going to ask you, uh, do, do, is there a person there, a main person that you might still know that would be good for? Oh, absolutely. And after after we're done here, I can give you a, a bunch of names. Yeah, there's definitely. And okay. Yeah, I, I would absolutely love that because that's if you've watched yeah. the videos, our narrative is completely, that's where Dan Dumbacher from the American Institute for Astronautics and Avionics, that's where Andy Aldrin have said, what Project Moonhot has is the storyline. Yeah. It is about improving life on Earth. That's the narrative. And so I'd love to speak to people who have that common bond or initiative. Yeah, the thing, and that yeah, the thing I really loved about working there was that uh, it was the mission, right? That everybody, this whole group, this small group of people were committed to this mission. And um, it's just, it was great to be a part of it. I, I've got to admit. No, that, sound, that sounds exciting. And I, I've never heard of it. Now, this is eight years. Wow. Eight years actively involved. Yeah. You've seen all the work. You've seen what we're working on. Never heard okay, of it. Okay, well, you, yeah, it's there. It's real. But that's, but that's a, but but take that take that from the concept of it's expanding. People are learning about it. People are knowing right. about it. And you're talking to a person who's involved every single day, and has never heard that yeah. brought up. So that's that's where the disconnect is. Yeah. It is we want the average individual to understand that it is not space. It's not science research or exploration that our lives are completely enveloped by things developed by people thought about beyond earth and that disconnect is yeah. still not there. So uh, I'd love to talk to people there. That's fantastic. I love the story. love the background and love the pieces. This is great. So uh, let's get on to your, I guess the, the, the first one was the definition of science and space. Yeah. Is that where we are now? The, yes. So, okay. um, there's a, a few aspects of this that I think we should uh, talk about. And first of it is, first of all, uh, science in space has been happening for a long time. In fact, if we go back to the Apollo missions, um, although it was kind of an afterthought, the uh, first scientist to go into space and the, the I think the only scientist to step onto the moon was a geologist. 
and and they were oh, you know okay. makes sense in as an maybe as an afterthought, but it makes sense now because that's what you want. You want to yeah. understand it if we're going to utilize it for um, purposes of building a hut or uh, finding water or doing something. You have to understand what you're dealing with and. Um, that is an observational type of science where you gather samples and you look at them and you bring them back and you study them. But that's where it starts. Mm -hmm. And science in space in many ways has been driven by NASA. Remember, they're a group of, for the most part, engineers. And a lot of the science is you go out and you observe the natural phenomena. And in the hopes, you know, as you develop it, you get better and better to the point where you're starting to observe the natural phenomena because you're going to try to utilize it, right? In situ resources is going to, you can't take everything with you when you're, you go off and try to explore another planet or what have you. So um, that has been the mainstay of um, NASA's research program, sending these fantastical probes to Mars that are rolling around, some of which have been rolling around for years, decades even, right? They've been there for many years and they've got uh, sample takers and they're analyzing the surface and what have you. And um, it was during the Apollo missions and they started to think about, hey, could we build a space station and take advantage of um, a floating platform in orbit and do science experiments. And what would those experiments be? And in fact, in 1973, May of 1973, the year that Skylab was launched, they published a book, NASA published a book, and it said, this is the type of science we should be thinking about doing on our new space platform, Skylab, that is going up at that time. And they started to look at um, in the beginning, just like you know any science endeavor, you're really doing your own little exploration. What makes sense? How do you do it? How do you execute it? How do we observe it? And then how do we take all the data we get and turn it into knowledge that has meaning and allows us to do the next thing, right? It's the, the whole concept of you make some observations, you uh, put together a hypothesis, and then you test that hypothesis. And from that cycle, you learn, and then you get better and better. And um, Skylab showed us the way, but it was really, in many ways, it was very um, simple. And we were doing more exploration of how do you do science than really doing hardcore science. It wasn't until shuttle came around where we were doing more routine uh, flights uh, and sending up um, scientists. There were people being sent up who were like crystallographers, people who grow crystals for the sake of trying to grow crystals in space because they thought there would be some real advantage to doing that. Um, it's, it's funny because you, you say Skylab and I went to Skynet. <laughs> what is skynet and then i said oh my god I'm going terminator. To terminator that's terminator <laughs> that's right that's right so like did they do do they do skynet did they really do skynet? <laughs> so um so uh space shuttle took us a long way but same with you know space shuttle there were months in between uh missions and the missions were short and the dream was always yep. that you put a very large, we'll call it permanent platform in orbit. And that was the 
you know, the plan initially it was an all U.S. effort, and it ended up being extremely expensive and very difficult, and it ended up being an international effort, and that turned into the International Space Station. And then going back to your point about people like not knowing about the Center for the Advancement of Science and Space. I would say that many people don't even know that we have a space station in orbit and that it has been up since, you know, they've been putting assembling pieces since the late 1990s and it has been permanently habited since uh, 2000, 24 years. There have been people in space. We have had people in space continuously for now 20, almost 24 years. It's So, so he, he, you made the comment and I'd like you to, you just said it's amazing that people don't even know. I, 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 why? I don't know, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make right here with you. I'm going to okay. make. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to announce that I'm one of those people. I did not even know. I'm admitting it. I I oh, didn't, didn't even know no, when when that know. woman called me up and said, "Hey, would you like to do science in space?" I said, "Sure, I'll I'll do science on a space shuttle." And she's like, "Well, we don't we don't actually fly space shuttles anymore, but we have a space station." And I was like, "Oh, okay." So what was that? That was okay. So, 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 so that's yeah. a good point. So so that's a great point. So let me ask you. Let's not talk about mm -hmm. other people. I one of the best. One of the challenges of human behavior is we always try to extrapolate to other people what other people are thinking. That's why you're talking to me. You're, you're helping me understand something. So I want to ask you a specific question. What do you think in your lifetime, being a science person in chemistry, in order to have chemistry, you're like me because you, you had biology, chemistry, physics, you had calculus, you had all these sciences in order to get a chemistry degree. I'm assuming very similar because that's what I had to do to get a biology major. My question is, why didn't you? What was missing in your life? What didn't you see? Why didn't it permeate it? Can you answer that just for I'm you? Gonna, I'm going to admit that the reason I did not um, pay attention was because it was so out of reach. I felt this is I'm I'm um, I'm I'm ignorant at the time. I was totally ignorant. it was so out of reach that it wasn't worth spending a lot of time thinking about. Right. It was it was neat. Okay. It was neat yep. to see like I would, you know, they'd say, oh, the space shuttle is coming in for a landing and we would go outside and watch and you could actually see it way up, way up high. We're here in Indiana. It would be flying across the sky. Right. Going on its way to Florida. Oh, you, you'd you could actually see it, okay? see it yep. coming through the atmosphere. Right. Um, and things like that, I think, were fun and interesting, but they were so remote and being done by other people who I didn't even know. Right. I, when I was a little kid, I used to send away to NASA and say, hey, could you send me pictures? And some nice guy at JPL would send me a bunch of uh, pictures from Voyager or something. And that was as close as I ever got, as I thought I would ever get. So when that okay. woman called me, it, so was, 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 it was not even real. I thought she was having so fun with me to do it. That that's brilliant. I mean, that's because what you're you've actually embedded a few things in there. You didn't know. You felt out of reach. You saw it expensive. You also didn't have an interest. You had some interest. Maybe I send me some pictures. For someone like me, it's I had no interest because I look out. I look down. I'm not a big look up to the sky person. Uh, it wasn't the math or the science. It wasn't the, it's just, it's a bunch of people working on something that I wasn't interested in. So you, when you heard about Project Moon Hut, and because we're talking, want to find this out, it's a great 
conversation piece. When you hear the video where it says, you know, baby food and the treadmills and the cordless power tool and the and the camera we have and uh, um, cloud computing and all these types of little pieces that Project Moon Hut is sharing. And we're trying to make it more normalized. When you saw it now, eight, 10 years later from the day in which, does it now, do, do you now say, yeah, that's that's exactly what's supposed to be hearing. Do you say that at all to yourself? I don't say that's exactly, but it's um, okay. It is. It has like opened my eyes to another reality. Like it was always there. I just didn't okay. know, and that's. I just didn't, didn't know. know, and that's okay. all right. I, I look at it and say um, that that is okay. And at the same time, I think we miss out because. You really want, if you're going to do some new adventure, some new, um, you know, uh, thing, you want to have the best people you can get on your team to help you make it work. And the problem we run into is, is engaging those people, is getting to those people. And there's a disconnect. They, they don't that's see right. the connection that's right. between their everyday life. They, they don't see the connection between their everyday life and they don't see why. And we run into this all the time. I mean, it's constant is you have to describe to them your mobile phone. You checked it this morning, right? You didn't say it was space weather. You said weather. You checked your phone today, right? You got satellite transmission and you got news. You you used your camera phone yesterday, twice yesterday, right? That's space yes. technology. You get in a car. The tires you're using go 20% to 30% longer because of space technology. Hey, your grandmother survived because of a cat. Yeah, scan. no, Dave, my, my they, kids will never know yeah. the joy of having to print out a map. So they can figure out where they're going, right? <laughs> it's it is, and we yep. so we use it. All you're absolutely right. It's invisible, but it is a part of our of our lives, of our daily life. Maybe that's the the most powerful thing we can say about it is that although it's not maybe obvious to everybody, we're already benefiting all of us from doing going the space. way the way the the way we share it is. You can't live a day on Earth today without in being influenced, working on, connecting with the devices, tools, technology, influences that were not created That's right. That's for right. beyond Earth. They were individuals. And by the way, those people who invented it never went up. That's right. They never went up. Only now 600 and some odd people yeah. have been up. So therefore, you don't even, it's not about going up. It's about the innovations that come That's out of right. going up. That's right. Okay, so, so so there's so so yeah. Definition, definition space. space. So Sorry. I, I want to say um, while we're still talking about uh, this, you know, science and space and and definition space, I think we need to talk about what is real. And I, I only bring that up because of conversations I've had recently, like with family members over the holidays, and you know, people who who kind of say, you know, <laughs> did we did we really go to the moon? Um, right or yeah, um, uh, is you know, there's this whole organization of people who um, talk about the world being flat, right? The world is flat. Yeah. So I think by uh, some of the work that we've done by going to space, it has allowed us to look back at us, look at, you know, see ourselves and see our place in the universe and, and see that the world is round. Uh, but it's the, the same... Yeah, it's, it it's, it's, a, it's a big sphere. I know. It's a shocker to some people, but it is. Okay. But... Um, um, I, you know, it's important to say that, yes, we did go to the moon and it wasn't going to the moon. You know, people said, well, you know, how was that going to benefit us just going to the moon and back? But 
all the effort, all the technologies, the breakthroughs. It, when people were told in the early 60s by their president they were going to go to the moon in that decade, the people who were put in charge of doing that thought it was impossible. I mean, there's they had to invent things yeah. and do things that were not possible to be thing and now and then they were when we got there we you had to answer a hundred thousand questions and they answered them and, they, and that hundred thousandth question was what will it feel like when you step onto the moon they answered them all they did it and through that effort we as a people as humanity are better we learned we saw things that changed the way we think about ourselves. We engaged new people, and we came out with new technologies that do benefit us all. So it's a, I, but but it, I, I've got to push back. You did say this was your answer. Did we go to the moon? And your answer is the answer is yes. yes. <laughs> have you met? Have you met a, a person a denier? I've. That doesn't it, work. No, what I've met are people who, who look at me and say they're just not sure. I'm not sure, right? So I think there's, and maybe that's a thing that's happening in America these days is, um, you don't have to be a scientist. To, no, it's yeah, you the don't world. have to be a scientist to question it. I'm not so sure. And yeah, I, I see you went to school and you you learned all this stuff, and I think a lot of people don't understand. I'm going back to that whole point of how the scientific method works. There are some things that we know, and we um, we with certainty because we can use it every day and it's never failed us. But there's a lot of pieces of science where we have come up with the best theory as to why something works the way it does or how something is or what have you. And people test those uh, theories constantly and people's theories change, right? As we learn, that's part of the and, process. And that that going back to your you said we want to, what was the, how did you say? You say, what is real? I've had people say exactly the opposite of what we're saying here, that it is not real. Uh, and when you say the scientific method, well, that's a challenge because I just saw a guy who had a lot of views who said that there is absolutely no climate change. It is all the sun. Nothing we're doing on this planet has anything to do with anything. We're all being led astray. It's the sun. And there were seven and a half thousand comments of people agreeing with him. And the scientific matter was tossed out the window. But there was also a lot of God in those commentary. In the commentary. Yeah. And those are hard to yeah. fight. It's very hard to fight. So and, I, and people I, can I, say whatever they want, right? I, Right. So that's, yeah. So uh, I don't know if there's an answer to that, but our, our challenge is to secure that box of the roof and a door on the moon. So, okay. Anything else, the last moment pieces or uh, science and space? No, we're, we're, we're now, I, what I really want to do is transition to why so, is science and space different? Like what is, what makes it special? Wait, wait. So okay. I, I'm, I'm going to make a, let me cut it here. We have the Carmen yeah. line, which is, you know, probably the actual definition, 100,000 kilometers mm -hmm. is what it is, I think it is. I don't it's, remember. It's 100, it's 100 kilometers. 100 kilometers, yes, yes. right. I was the kilometers. I did that. 100 kilometers. And uh, people are going to laugh at me for that. <laughs> uh, so, 100, so when you say space, some people argue, well, we're actually in low Earth orbit. We're not really in space. So when you are using the term, you're saying anything above the Carmen line are... How do you define I'm, it? I'm going to say more... that uh, science and space 
are uh, things that are happening um, in a low Earth orbit or above. Okay, that's okay. what I thought. That's what. I, so, so in low Earth orbit, uh, there's a there's a range there, but for like the space station, yeah. you know, where we can um, use that as our um, you know our index. That's the that's the point that I'm going to work off of. So we we're talking 250 or so miles up, and um, uh, an orbit is where it's moving laterally, sideways. Um, and it's moving fast enough that even though it's falling, it's in free fall back to the Earth, it's going laterally so fast that it just keeps on missing. So it just, and that makes the orbit. That is the orbit. And there's special um, uh, properties you get from being in an orbit like that. Now, there's benefits to going further out in space. And I'll, I'll say a few words about that. But really what I want to talk about is what's happening in orbit, because that's where we spend the bulk of our time in space. Okay, so here's for me. I just act, I pulled up the Project Luna classification system under the forty year plan uh -huh. on the website because I wanted to get the data on it. It actually said uh, two hundred kilometers to two thousand kilometers yes. is low Earth orbit, and so there. It's actually this is fantastic. You've got to see it. And I just just to break people who are listening. We are don't have our video on, so we don't see each other. We're not sharing screens. We don't. We're we're we do this without it intentionally, so that we don't react to people's facial expressions and movement. So I'm going to say to you, Ken, if you did pull up Project Moon Hut and you did go to the 40 year plan and you scroll down to Mer the Project Moon Hut classification system, you'll see all of this outlined. It might be useful as a tool for you when you're showing people where we work, what we do, yeah. and how we do it. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so. So let's go to you said the science of space. Why science of space is different, yes. or special? So, okay. so um, there are, uh, of course, benefits and excitement from going to, let's say, Mars or sending probes to Jupiter and looking at the moons. I think it's it's truly fascinating, and I've always loved like Star Trek, and that's uh, it harkens back to all the Star Trek type of stuff, right? <laughs> going and being a I, I, I grew being up an with explorer. Star Trek. Yes. I mean, that's the thing is being an explorer and it's exciting. So there, um, and by doing that, by going to other planets, uh, other moons, you, you see what makes our system special and what the opportunities are in the future. You know, if we do, if we did go to a Mars and tried to set up camp, um, how, what would you breathe? There's, there's very little atmosphere and it's all carbon dioxide. So it forces you to think, well, could you set up a system that would make that livable? Could you harvest the atmosphere yeah. to make um, oxygen to breathe? And if you went through that process, what would you have to bring with you to make water, right? Those are the, so, and that pushes us forward. And that type of science I find fascinating. And every chance I get to be on a project where somebody's talking about that, I do it. Um, at the same time, the science and space that um, I focus on, and for, uh, for this discussion, I really wanted to emphasize was science being done uh, in low Earth orbit. And for the most part, there's like three areas of that science. One is people go to space to look back down at the Earth or to look out into space, but it's for perspective. You can see things when you're off our planet that you otherwise cannot see because either the atmosphere is in the way or you just can't get the whole picture. 
type of thing. And uh, for when I worked at the um, U.S. National Lab with cases, I would say um, of all the things we did, that was probably 10% of the time. That's what people were trying to do, is get a view back down at the earth or see things in a different way. And um, those were always uh, very interesting and a lot of fun. And with the context, because you're saying it sounds psychological when you're saying it, but I think the way you're really performing it, because we have to tie back to the science, is you're saying looking back down on Earth, for example, for topographical right. mapping, for the for the ocean temperatures, for the movement of migration of species, yes. or all those type of things. You're really talking scientific. Um, yes, discovery. and I, I would uh, say, you know, as a caveat, the space station is not a great platform for looking back down at the Earth because the way it operates, it does not um, see the same thing in every orbit. The it is in a, a sort of a, a stationary orbit where it's just going around and around and around, and underneath it, the Earth is rotating. And for that reason, there's, you know, it's, it's uh, moved on to a new part of the Earth when you come back around. But what uh, people have used it for is the development of new observational tools, which you can set up. And if you need to make an adjustment, there's an astronaut there who can just go over and make the adjustment. Whereas if you launch something on, uh, a, you know, a satellite, a free-flying satellite, if something didn't go right, you'd have to retrieve that satellite and that could be very expensive and difficult. So, um, yeah, the, I'd, uh, I happen to have on the screen open from the project, from the classification system and the international space station and the Qiangong are both represented. They're actually moving at the same, sp the speed that they're supposed yeah. to be around earth. And it's interesting because I never thought about it just the way you described it in, I've thought about it as a rotation around the earth and I thought about the earth rotating, but I didn't think about the fact that you wouldn't be seeing the same thing yeah. over and over again. Yeah. So, <clears throat> okay. So, um, we talked about the orbit and you, you're moving and you're moving actually quite fast. They're moving about 17,500 miles per hour in that orbit. That's how fast you have to be going at that altitude to keep from falling back down to the earth <clears throat> and at the same time not spin out into space so they're moving very fast and what people will do is they will take uh, a piece of material plastic or metal or fabric or something that they want to study and there's special devices that are um, placed outside the space station and exposed to space. So as you're moving along, there's radiation, uh, there's a very large temperature swing. When you're facing the sun, it's 250 degrees. And when you're in the shade of the earth, it's minus 250 degrees. And that's happening, a full, a full orbit takes about 90 minutes. So you're going very hot, cold, very hot, cold, and doing that a number of times each day. Uh, in addition, the fact that you're moving so fast means that any debris or objects, anything that is falling to the earth, you are striking at about 17,500. That is much faster than a bullet. So even very small pieces of dust can have an impact. And that's what people are studying by placing things outside. They want to see what microparticle impacts the effect is, what the radiation or, this, or the temperature swings have on materials. For the most part, I'm sure people are doing it because they're trying to determine what 
materials they can make spacesuits out of or spaceships or satellites or whatever. But in some cases, people are trying to make high-performance fabrics, let's say, for uh, new jackets to be used on Earth. And this is a way to do an interesting kind of analysis of you know, how well they can hold up to extreme environments. I'm, I'm picturing now. I, I didn't know they were putting pieces outside. I feel I, I have this picture of like a clothing line <laughs> where a guy opens yeah. the window and <laughs> puts, it, puts it out. Says, "Quick, close that! It's getting cold in here. We're getting uh, we're losing all our oxygen. Close that!" And they leave it out there, and it's flat. Now there's the little way. little swatches, uh, little you know pieces, maybe the size of a half dollar or a silver dollar or something. Um, but they uh, one of the platforms is called the Missy platform, and uh, that's something that if you as a private citizen wanted to do this, there are mechanisms by which you can get that put onto the Missy platform. And even the um, the Kibo facility, which is the Japanese laboratory, it has its own little airlock and a little robot arm on the outside. And you put your whatever you want to put outside in the airlock, close it up. The robot will open the door from the outside and reach in and grab the thing and put it out on a porch. It's like a porch out in front of the space station and things sit out there. You know, you wouldn't want to sit out there, but you can put all your plastics and fabrics or whatever and, and study them. So there's a couple of different ways. Have you have you ever have you personally seen or touched or any of the materials? I have seen them, and I've been involved in projects where they were putting them out there. But I've never done one of those experiments myself. Never been, uh, you know, somebody who put a piece of plastic. You know, here's my sample and sent it up and put it out there. But I know people who have, and it was a fairly routine thing to do. Uh, um, uh, I I find efforts like that pretty interesting because you. You learn things you don't expect. I think that's a key for me as a scientist. That's always been kind of a striking thing is that I've always been a, a good observationalist for the science I'm doing, but also looking for things that weren't expected and and taking me down paths that uh, weren't planned. I enjoy that part of science. So, okay, how can you identify? putting you on the spot here, but I, uh, and for the, for just for me, I'm just, can you identify one of those material experiments that was put outside that turned into something on earth that was useful? Um, I, I'm not sure I'm, I can talk about it. So I'd have to, I'm going to defer that one. I'm going to have to. <clears throat> well, can, can, can you say, you can so say, do yes I know? Yes. So without I saying know what it is. Yes. 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 There have been things that have been put outside where people learned things that uh, turned into something else, turned into something bigger. And in fact, there is a, was one study that was done that led to, uh, right now, there is a part of, on the space station, there is an inflatable sphere, a piece of um, the station that is not made of metal, and it is uh, yep. it was originally an experiment. I guess in a way it still is, will always be, but it was to see, hey, could we make a space station that was out of inflatable material? Because then you don't have to send up all these rigid structures. You could fold it all up like a tent, put it out there, and then just pressurize it. And part of that Right. That's what's the, what's the name? What's the name of the company? They close. They close. That was the uh, Bigelow was the that Bigelow, Bigelow space. Bigelow space. And, yeah. Yes. But they but they haven't used it 
They've used it only used for storage. it only for storage, and there's other. It doesn't have power, and there's other details that make it not fully functional. But it, but it's, it's still it's there. Still there, it has That's right. collapsed. It's, right, and it was supposed to only be up for. That's a right. You you can time. imagine that people would be nervous of having essentially a fabric is the only thing between them and, um, you know, if there were a hole, something hit it and it broke, um, you you depressurize that station, you could run into serious trouble very quickly. So. Uh, but, but like you said, it's been up there now for a long time. They're using it for storage and um, and things like that then um, inform us for, hey, what about a space suit? A space suit is a flexible fabric, you know, unit. It's a spaceship. It is a little spaceship, a one-person spaceship. And uh, the design of those and the materials that goes into those has changed over time. And we've learned from that. You can go all the way back to the original space suits for um, Gemini through Apollo and, you know, a little company, um, a, a, a small company that we all know um, that, you know, went into the business of making spacesuits. It's Playtex. The people at the time, they were making bras and they felt that, hey, they were, they felt themselves to be the best suited to build a um, a fabric, a rubberized fabric. Are you making? Are no. you making a joke? No, best suited. Best suited. Yeah, best it's, it's suited. good. It's a, no, it's God. good, isn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> and they and they did it, and and they're still making uh, spacesuits. The um, um, part of that organization is still involved. I, I've had a lot of discussions with members of our team, one in Germany, Andreas, where the the uh, the astronauts go out and they wear an outfit that takes a few hours to get in and get out and be able to acclimate where the Russians have an outfit that they crawl into the back, they can half hour and they can yeah. be out onto the outside. So we, we could, we have made a lot of advancements, but there's also, it's the old, you, know, you, you invented a pen to go up into space and we, that's yeah. And there's, you're still going to see that you're it. You'll see that going forward. And I think there's also a lot of exchange. There's things that are invented by one group that are then translated into the other. You can even look at um, toilets. We're right now, my organization, the company I work for, Redwire, is uh, working to develop a new space toilet. And there's a couple of versions. One that would be go to the moon, we call the Lunar Lou. Uh, one that is for space, which we call the Cosmic Commode. And some are you, you, we we got to change those names to Project Something for a Box of the Week in the Door, <laughs> just so you know. We have to make the we have to tie it to Project Moon. The interesting now here's I didn't know you don't flush on the International Space Station, and uh, Andreas laughed. Just I don't know it was just hysterically, but he said, "There's no running water. It doesn't, it doesn't work, work that, that way. way." Yeah, a lot of the, yes, and so you have yeah. to rethink the way that you do things, and a lot of that was rethought during Apollo. Um, but the current um, toilet slash life support system that's on station is a marvel of engineering. It's the fact that it is so compact and that it is um, so robust that it has worked over time. But there are challenges with it. And NASA knows it. They had to make some decisions that were really tough that, um, you know, it, it one of the things for recovering urine, they have to... Uh, kill all the bacteria. Yeah. It, it would go, it, it would all, go over all over the place. place. So they have yes. a, a special device for capturing it right from the human body. Well, now yeah. you've got uh, female astronauts. Your crew is male and female. Yeah. They had Correct. to then uh, 
a whole a different whole tool, different tool. Yeah, right? <laughs> and then uh, when the, uh, the urine is captured, they have to treat it. And they had to make um, a tough call on that. And they ended up using a material, uh, chromium is the oxidant they use. You have to oxidize all the organic materials in there to carbon dioxide. That's what you're ultimately trying to turn it all into. And um, chromium trioxide, you know, uh, hexavalent chromium, that is what got uh, Aaron Brockovich all upset, right? That's That stuff is deadly, toxic, yep. and it's a carcinogen. And for a long-term mission, like going to Mars, it's unacceptable. But for a space station, it yep. was the best they could come up with in that time. It works. And um, so... There's technology there that we have used. And, and when you look at the toilets and the actual design of the toilet, it is loud. The current space station toilets are loud and they're, um, they don't look very um, appealing, right? They, were they are of Soviet-era design. And, and the U.S. toilet was taken to a large extent based on uh, the Russians. And the Russians used the Soviet-era design for their toilet. So there's a lot of room. It's the, a very pragmatic yes, approach. Yes, all the is that the easy way? Is that they're very, just very pragmatic? Right. It wasn't a that's design right. concept. It was it had to yes. Do it's the like job. a Soviet era office building, right? It did the job, but you wouldn't yeah. want to spend a lot of time in it if you didn't have to. So, so um, those are some of the things that come from this. Uh, the being exposed to the environment forces you to change the way you operate. It gives you opportunities to look at new materials and a new perspective. Now, the last piece of doing science in space, and the one that I would say 85% or so of all the science done in space is trying to take advantage of this, is what we find in low Earth orbit, and that is microgravity. So it's not exactly zero gravity. Microgravity is what you get when you are falling. And in a, in a total free fall in a vacuum, that's what you get. And yeah. that is what the space station is in. So although there is very, very little gravity, you would not, as a person, you would not be able to feel it. If you took a tool like a wrench and you left it hovering, you know, in front of you in microgravity, if you came back a day later, you would find that it would be in the bottom towards the earth and in the front of that compartment. And it would slowly, very slowly get taken down to that point. But you don't feel things falling. Um, if, if we built a, um, a tower with a ladder and we put on a spacesuit and we climbed up that ladder and that ladder went 250 miles up to the space station and we sat, there was a seat on it and we sat there, we would still feel 90% of the force of gravity. So um, it is not just because they are up there. It is because they are in an orbit in a kind of free fall and they're just missing as they go around that. So wait, so if you if we were on the top of a ladder that was 250 miles up and we were sitting on it, we would still feel we would the still gravity. feel the gravity about 90 percent of it because Why? because gravity yeah. is um, a force between large objects and the earth's pull is that far that is the gravitational force if it ended you know when you got up a, a certain ways then the moon and the earth wouldn't be together they are held together because of their combined gravitational forces right that i get 
that I get, but I don't understand how I would still feel it. Like I'd feel it on my butt because I'm sitting yeah. on a chair 250 miles up because there's there that is much that much force. force. If yeah, if you had pulling. a 10 pound weight and you took it up there, it would feel like nine pounds when you were up there. But because the velocity of 17.5, it take it removes it's, that. It's not the velocity. Factor. It's the fact that the space station and everybody in it and all the stuff on it is all falling to the Earth. It's in free fall. Right. But you have to be staying up high enough. And the way you do that is you go, it's yeah, you move falling. yourself laterally. You move yourself sideways across. Right. Right. So therefore, you're not feeling it because you're going sideways. But because you're sitting on a ladder, you would still feel it because you're, you're not, not falling sideways. It's because you're stationary. You're not falling. That is correct. Okay. Okay. So yeah, so you you need the it's not seventeen five, but the seven you need the velocity of going at a horizontal speed to be. You able need to the velocity the so that you don't of, hit the earth. Correct. Yeah, that's my yes. point. Yes, yeah. So you're not you're, you're never right. hitting the earth, no matter how hard you go, you, no matter you how fall. far or yeah. continuous you go, yes. you are constantly falling. Okay, but I never thought you mm -hmm. could feel that. Huh. In fact. We've, we've never done no, that. No, we've right? never built we've never a little thing that. like that and done that. But you that that would happen. And you okay. see it when um there are people who have done these extreme high altitude um parachute drops. You know, they go up in a very high mm -hmm. uh balloon that takes them into the upper parts of the stratosphere and they just step off and they're just falling. They are just you're just falling. And the same with even bringing um a satellite or some um spacecraft back down to the earth the way you bring them down is you turn so that your uh, thrusters your nozzles are uh, pointing in the direction you're going and then you just apply resistance and you slow down and as you slow down you will start to fall gravity you it will over your speed is no longer enough to keep you from falling you'll just start to fall down and that's how they do it and Oh, yeah, they just you just that. have to slow down. Never, that's yeah. fascinating. So you yeah, you just you're you're going fast enough so you're constantly overshooting the earth. You just deter and break and you'll fall. And and you don't even have to aim down. You are yeah. going In down. Fact, um yeah, you don't have to aim down, but they do have to aim down if you don't want to burn up. If you come in too straight, you will um it will get too hot. It will be too much. You want to come in and use right. the yes. atmosphere to slow you as you come in. And then as you get slower and slower, your descent starts to become straighter and straighter down. And they've worked all that uh, out. Yes. So, okay. So then as you, as you start to be, so you're use you're still using your thrusters to keep so that you're not in that straight That's right. Once you've slowed so, yourself yeah, to the right yeah, speed, understood. they turn off the thrusters and they just let um, yeah, uh, resistance, air resistance and whatever. So, okay, so we've talked about microgravity. And um, yep. if you wanted like true zero G, like you, you know, without having to be in an orbit, you would literally have to be millions of miles away from the Earth. Millions of miles. Um it's a, it would be a very long way. So we're lucky that we have this phenomena that's close because it is like a whole new science. It's in its way, in a way it is its own field of science because things happen there that we have never been able to do on earth, never been able to observe or um, utilize. For example, 
Simple things, very simple thing. As a chemist and people who've taken general chemistry probably taken a lab where they had to make little crystals and um, isolate the crystals and you grow them in your little flask and um, they get bigger and bigger and then they get to a certain size and they fall to the bottom of the flask. Uh, they're precipitating. Things are precipitating, they fall to the bottom, and then you can decant off the liquid. In space, things don't fall. And when you microgravity, things don't fall like that. So now the crystals are in a position to continue to grow. They aren't uh, limited by how big they get when they fall. They just can continue to get bigger and bigger. And because you don't have um, heat doesn't rise. If you like light a flame on the space station, it doesn't look like what we're used to where it's blue and almost invisible right at the wick, and then it's bright yellow and then orange and red, and then there's smoke coming off the top. It does not look like that. It looks like a small blue orb. And it suffocates itself because it uses all the air right around it. No more air is moving in like in a flame on the earth where it comes from under and up. It doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. So um, heat doesn't rise. And for that reason, a lot of the perturbations that we see on earth, we do not see in microgravity. So the crystals are not only bigger, but they're more uh, perfect. They're better formed. And uh, the last thing, and this is kind of an odd observation that was made by um, a, a, a chemist who had been doing protein crystal work for many years, but he did a little retrospective of people's experiences doing this type of work. And a lot of these people who were growing crystals for a specific purpose would say, oh, my crystals were bigger and better, um, you know, more ordered. And by the way, all the crystals that I made were about the same size and shape. And this person worked in the pharmaceutical industry like I do. And when you say that, it has a specific meaning. What you're saying is all the crystals are uniform. They're the same. And in yeah. the pharmaceutical industry, that is an extremely important property to have in a product that you're making. You want, if you make a big batch and you're going to take a little spoonful out to make a pill, you want that spoonful and the last spoonful and every spoonful in between to be identical. So if you can make all the crystals the same size and shape, that's important. So that. So I, I do want to ask about sure. two things. Uh, I want to make a point and then ask something. Uh, let me ask first. No, let me make a point first. Okay. I did look it up. You will all, it says, strictly speaking, Earth's gravity will always pull on an object no matter how distant. Gravity is a force that obeys the inverse square law. For example, put an object twice as far away and it will feel a quarter of the force. Put it four times. So you are really talking way, millions way and out millions there. of millions it, of miles yes. before. But, but you're going to be influenced by something else before you'll be influenced Maybe. by the moon. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, Earth. Yes. So that was one. I, I just looked it up because I hadn't, I hadn't heard it that way. Uh, the crystal side. We have Mirth Biotech. Yep. I think you might have heard that that may, used before, and we do know Yossi. And I, I'd never asked him that question, but I'd like to ask you. He talked about, or I've read about, the fact that you can create this uniform crystal in an environment such as in low Earth orbit, and you can put a keystone in a holding point so it maintains its structure. How do you take that as a chemist and bring it back to Earth? and duplicate the same thing. Why doesn't it now have the same influence of gravity and not replicate that, itself? David, that you is understand what I'm asking? a great question. That is, it's important, not okay. only because it's an interesting one. Hey, you know, 
why, but also because if you're going to do something that's going to have economic value, especially in the near term, then the logistics of trying to take tons of material into space to make crystals and bring it back, it's just, it's not practical. It's, it's, it's impractical. It's, it's yeah. ridiculous. Okay. It's, yeah, it's, it's not, it's one of the challenges of Beyond Earth is it's financially impractical yes. to do a lot of the things that yes. we expect to do. So yeah, I'm, okay. I'm okay, interested so I'm going to so, so explain. explain. So, and, and, um, and when we're done explaining this, I'm going to talk about um, uh, some of the practical aspects of trying to do these types of things. And we're just talking the, the practical okay. economics, we'll say. Okay, so, okay, so I, first I of all, hear both. so yes, how does absolutely. that work? So uh, as a young chemist, I was always taught this concept of seeding a reaction or seeding a, um, a crystal. A batch of crystals. So what you yeah. do is you take a, a one small seed or a few seeds and you put them into the solution as you're this, the solution you're making or developing is getting to the point where it's going, material's going to start crystallizing out. And what will happen is yep. the new crystals formed will use the, the crystals you put in there as a template. That is the concept. And they will see the structure and they will grow new crystals like it. Now, it seems kind of far-fetched, but in fact, the pharmaceutical industry and other associated industries like agriculture and cosmetics and food industry have used this concept for many years. And what they will do is they will find a crystal form. So a, um, a single thing, let's say water, for example, a water ice that we know, ice is the only form of frozen water that exists uh, um, in an area where we can see it, on the earth, in our atmosphere. So when you go and you look at, uh, you know, ice out in a lake, even a snowflake, if you looked at them at their molecular structure, you'd see that the order, the way there are all these um, H2O molecules are stacked on one another, um, holds true in the same way. And that gives it certain properties, which are interesting. For example, uh, it's, you mean, you mean it, it's is, uniform. it is uniform, uniform and it is the same crystal form, the same crystal lattice structure for ice, no matter where you go on earth is going to look like that. Yes. Really? Really? So when, so when I have looked at ice and there's happens to be a, a little thing that forms ice outside of our window when I'm eating lunch and I always look at it and say, well, that's got to be different than the ice on the lake because it looks different. It's it's cloudier and, and it's probably just pulling up the properties. From it's sitting it's in. Sitting yeah, there in. might be minerals in it. There might be oxygen in it. You might see little bubbles, right? But the ice itself yes. has the same structure. And that structure is odd in that if you looked at it, there are little tubes, little openings in the lattice, and there is nothing in those little openings. They are empty space between the molecules. And because of that, water is slightly larger when it's frozen. It's about 10% uh, bigger, 9 or 10% yep. bigger when it's frozen. And that's why it expands. Okay. Now there are because because, because of, the of the little spaces, okay. yes. Now there are ways yeah. to make other forms of ice, and uh, there is a form of ice that is found very very high up in the Earth's atmosphere, but it would not it is not formed on Earth. And then I think there's about thirteen other forms of ice that have all been made in a special device where you put the water under an immense amount of pressure and then freeze it, so it can't expand. But they're always. However, or but, or whatever whatever word we need to use here, 
it's still uniform because it's it, ice. The, the, no, in, in all, all of those, those other forms, forms, the crystal structure is is different than the one we see. Yeah. No, but, that's but what it, I mean. Is you have the uh, yes. ice version one yes. is uniform, yes. the one that we see. Ice version two, three, four are all that's uniform correct. to themselves, which is contradictory to other types of uh, molecular structures that are created such as in pharmaceuticals, they can't okay. create that. So ice tends to have a property yes. of okay. uniformity. So, yeah. so, Is that what you're saying? So, um, yeah, and they're all unique and they are all... So the same thing can be done with pharmaceuticals. A pharmaceutical can come in several different forms. And there's some famous examples where that has been a problem. One of them is ritanavir, which is uh, one of the first products that was produced for HIV uh, back in the 80s by Abbott Labs. And uh, they made the material. They it went through clinical trials. It worked. They made pills out of it. They put the pills in like little gel caplets. Um, were put on pharmacist shelves, and people could come and buy it and what have you. It was prescribed. But what the pharmacists started to see was within those caplets, crystals were forming. And uh, Abbott had to pull it uh, from the market. Yeah. Had to figure out what was going on. What they found was the original crystal that they made was the fastest crystal to form. It was the first crystal to form, and that's what they went with. But what was happening in those caplets was a more stable crystal, one that was of lower energy. Yeah. It, it was evolving. It was involved. Yes. State. So yeah. what... It was evolving because it hadn't... It hadn't... Yeah, it hadn't cycle, had a chance. So they, yeah. had, they had taken the original. They thought they it had it. It was still not done. It was still not done. Okay, so... Yeah. Um, what... A pharmaceutical company wants to do is find the a a best, and I put that in quotes, a best form. And the best form, may, there might be for different purposes, different forms that are best. Maybe you want one for an oral tablet, and that is a certain form. But maybe there's another for a gel caplet or a liquid or um, an injectable or something that you want a different form. By going yeah. into space, we have the ability to make different forms. But it goes back to your point. What do you do? Are you going to take a, a you know a truckload of stuff into space that would be cost prohibitive, and and maybe just from a standpoint technically impossible at this point? So what you do is you take yep. one crystal, you bring it down, and you use it as a template. And in the pharmaceutical industry, they'll do that. They'll make get to a form that they like, and then when they make the next batch, they will take half, maybe. 40 or 50% of the current batch with the correct form and dump it in to dominate the architecture of the next set of crystals. And they'll do that again and again so that they know they're getting the same form every time. So, so I, I, I get that. Con well, I get the concept. More mine is kind of in the middle. It is that you create in a microgravity environment, you create a structure. That structure, in order to form, in my head, sorry, it needed the microgravity to be able to fulfill its replication or its its structure uh, properties. That piece, when brought down, why this could be just the question of the way the the universe works? Why does it not fall apart because it's duplicating something that was made in an environment that doesn't so, exist? Yes, I know exactly you what you're what saying. Asking and you're now. asking the right question. You're That's asking the right I question. So the first is, okay. um, I don't know. 
Okay. I don't, and I don't know <laughs> if anybody really understands what is happening there, but um, for growing crystals, you could say the same if you made a crystal once, how does that impart its structure onto the next? And I'm not sure people know all they, but they're, they're. Okay. So yeah. two questions. We have the one, we have the general one. We don't even That's know right. how it works on earth. And so now we're making a complexity. We're creating a molecule in a space, in an environment that we don't even know how it's actually operating, but we do know the microgravity influences it. And then bringing it down and saying, That's right. we don't know so, how that works um, now, I'm at Now here's the second <laughs> part of it. And this is, it might be troubling for people, but but bear with me. So um, so that well, one yeah, individual gonna... who saw that you make more uniform crystals, he said, well, my own company has a compound that has a problem with its crystal form. And the problem that they had was it didn't make a single form. Whenever they would crystallize it, it would make um, more than one crystal in a certain mixture, like a, a three, we'll say a three to two mixture of two crystals. And it was going to be dosed as a as a solid as a, there it's a crystalline suspension that is delivered to patients so um he said well i wonder if i take it to space will i make a single crystal will i make a uniform single crystal like we've seen in all these other examples so they took some of that material took it to space and they not only made a single crystal but it was a crystal they had never seen before so it was a unique crystal and it was a single crystal so that's half of it. Now we're getting to your part, which is, well, when you bring it down, what do you make? So we brought it down and they did not describe in true detail. All they said is they were able to translate that and to make new crystals on the ground. So it brings up the question, did they make the same crystal they made in space or did they make yet a th another crystal? And the key there is for me as a pharmaceutical representative as a chemist in the pharmaceutical industry, I really don't care. I'm not trying to necessarily make something better. I want something different than it is there. And then I can find the utility of that difference, of the you use the benefit. Yeah, it's that's true. You it doesn't it doesn't matter it works, but it's just a it's it's like how? How? What what yes. makes there's the uh there's one tool that we created in, I shared with you, paid to think. There's one tool that's in there called redefining. It's how to always come up with a solution better than you will ever come up with, no matter what you're working on, every single time. I mean, it's without fail, someone will always improve the condition that they create. And we've done it over and over and over again. So, But when we were creating it, one individual turned to me and said, we, we were two of us in this room, and he said, well, you need to do, uh, he asked the question, why? And my immediate reaction was, why does it matter? And he looked at me shocked. And I said, because it doesn't matter. That's not the right. question we're asking. And it was, an, it was a, we'd worked on it for three years. That was a turning point. I remember I was standing in the corner because we were going, we had 13 pages going around the walls and why didn't matter. And you've more or less said, I don't care. I can take a crystal. I can make it. I can bring it down. It works. Let's figure out why the universe works another time. Yes. And Correct? I think that is how we learn, right? When we see it and we see that it works, yeah. we say, well, then it's this is because of this, whatever. We throw out the, the hypothesis. And then if that's the case, well, then test the hypothesis. And you're not, you don't prove hypotheses as much as you find data that supports them. 
and you use them. If the hypothesis yeah. worked mm -hmm. and you do it a bunch of times, well, then you can use that to make inferences. Well, if all those work, well, then this should work. We should be able to do this now. And you te that's another way of testing it, but it's how we move forward. That's how we push the science forward. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yes, it's letting go of that one piece of it doesn't doesn't you don't have to know why it happened. You just know that it does work and then we can use it and we figure that out later. So that's fascinating. Oh, okay, so we've okay. talked about microgravity yep. and um, there's a lot of uses where I talked about crystals, but uh, plants uh, express different genes. So they have the same genetic code, right? The plant's genetic code is the same, but how it, the genes are expressed as proteins and what the plants turn into changes. And by putting them in microgravity, you can see things that you would never see on earth. And people who study plants l learn from that. So that's as... Wait, 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 wait. You, you just, you just like whoosh right by there. You were going more than 17.5. Okay. You said plants express different genes. So when a plant is put into microgravity, it acts, behaves, reproduces, whatever differently. You end you up, end with, a up with something plant? that looks different. For example, in microgravity, look, look, but it, it, it looks different because of microgravity. But is it, is it, gen, is it different? Um, on the molecular level, it is. Its they, DNA they, yeah, is the yeah, same because, but D, the way um, your uh, your genetics, your the, the DNA code in yeah. different parts of your body are expressed in different ways, and then that leads to proteins and structures that have different functions. And in plants, Correct. what you see is well, you don't need a really strong stem, so their stems tend to be. Um, less structurally rigid and longer because all they're trying to do is reach to the light. So they, their genetics, their DNA is the same, but the way they express them and the things, the structures and their activities are different. So you're using the word structure, but you're not using the structure as related to the plant's growth phases because it doesn't- Yeah, it's macro gravity, structure. But you're not saying- Okay, you are using when I heard the word structure, I was going to the crystals and the development of how it forms. But what you might be saying at the same time is because it's now in a different environment, the DNA is expressing itself differently because it doesn't need to act on those uh, instructions. That's right. It has other way. environmental pressures that are. That's right. So correct, and you. And this is something that people who study plants, you might see uh, things expressed that you didn't even know were in that plant, hidden, right? Because they aren't used, right? So right. Um, there, it's just... That's exactly what I was saying. And so it's, it's, it's forming, it's allowing it to express itself completely that's right. differently, which is, again, fascinating that it allows... But I wonder... Because we do talk about we we had some we've had some people on humans in space and we do have challenges because we don't know how certain things react such as the birth of a child if you were on the moon if the cells will split the same way as they would on Earth and we and know there's changes in people's physiology the right their bones right since they don't yes. have gravity their bones start to um, um, they have osteoporosis, essentially. Their bones start to degrade. Their muscles start to um, degrade because they're, they're not having to fight gravity all the time. So we know there are changes. Um, 
And, and and that is where what exercise piece of equipment was formed was created. Which I don't know. The, the, elliptical. the elliptical. There you go. <laughs> the elliptical. The running. Running was one of the ways in which to mm. create bone density, and that became a whole industry of wow. sports. It helped to accelerate that entire ecosystem. They can go back to nineteen to those time frames. You don't think there wasn't the gym? There weren't the gyms the same way we have today. It was a lot of muscle building, and then the ellipticals and the, all of these trainers came out of it. So it, it's impacted people who get on a treadmill every day. So yeah, the the muscle degradation and there's also radiation, there's radiation challenges, challenges that yes. over time. So so there's a lot of um, challenges that are that we find changes we'll say that occur when we go to space microgra in uh, microgravity in low earth orbit um, and other challenges radiation and what have you as you start to go beyond uh, earth's atmosphere and the electromagnetic shield um, but a lot of the things that for me are most fundamental and most interesting are simple things just like the behavior of water and if you get a chance uh, scott kelly did a great little video where he stuck uh, put some, uh, made a little ball of water, which was held sort of in um, uh, the middle of the compartment that he was in on space station. And he put some food dye in there to make it change color. And then he stuck an Alka-Seltzer in it. And if you run that same example on the earth, of course, you have to run it in a cup, a little plastic cup or something, and you put it in, you put Alka-Seltzer yep. and we've seen it right there. Um, bubbles form millions of little yep. bubbles and little pieces of particles coming out of there and stuff's fizzing out. And when he did it, you can see some particles coming off and fizzing, but instead of making millions upon millions of little bubbles, you really just make three large bubbles. And they don't go away. They just roll around. There's nothing pushing them out. There's nothing driving them to the surface. Like on Earth, the gravity is pulling the water down, right. and it's much more dense than the air, so the air gets popped out the top. But um, when you do that in space, all of a sudden, gravity is removed. So now it is all adhesion and cohesion of the water to itself. <clears throat> But is it always uh, three? Every example I've seen, I've only seen, I think, three times this done, it ends up being three large bubbles. Which, which is, is inter interesting. I do not I know. wonder hey. if it's the, the, um, the, the volume of the, the size of the Alka-Seltzer tablet or how much is put water. in the volume of the water. But it, yeah, it could be a combination yeah. of the interesting. Uh, by the way, if you're next time you speak to Kelly, yeah. tell him he's got to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, just tell me he's got to do podcasts. Uh, okay, so what else do we okay, have? Okay, so we've, we've talked about science and space, and, and now what I wanted to do was talk about uh, the players and what's happening. Because we, you and I talked about the fact that um, things changed, that there was kind of an inflection point, but it continues. And other people have gotten involved, and in some ways it is driving – the whole program forward. It's although things are, I still think, in many ways, dependent upon NASA and the direction it takes. There are other people who are making, uh, influencing the decisions in, and influencing the outcomes, and stepping up and saying, "Hey, I want to do this, okay. or I want to be a part of that." I'd <clears throat> love to hear your perspective. Yeah. Okay. I've got so, my own. <laughs> so some of the big players for. Uh, things that are happening. We've talked about Elon Musk and SpaceX. They're they're a huge player. They have a commercial program that 
I think is making money. They've got plans to go out and do other things. And some of the innovations that they have made, uh, technical and um, logistical and what have you, are so big that uh, no one can match them at this point. There is no, not even, there are governments that cannot match what they're doing. And it is, uh, I think, in many ways, the beacon that people are moving towards. In fact, I was at a conference and someone gave a presentation on what they were doing. And then someone in the audience just asked them, it looks like you are trying to get to the point where SpaceX was five years ago. And the guys, the guys sort of said, yeah. That's where, that's the best we can do. So that is happening. What, at the same time, there are other big push. That's Elon Musk and, and a Blue Origin. And I would kind of um, hearken him to someone like Cornelius Vanderbilt, who during the California gold rush was shuttling people and material to Panama um, and or to Nicaragua, and then they would go across, and then he would pick them up on another boat and take them up to California. Elon Musk is is doing that type of thing. He's like the modern-day Cornelius Vanderbilt, shuttling people and material into space. Uh, Blue Origin, which is uh, Jeff Bezos's company, is in many ways yeah. uh, trying to do some of the same things, but they've got their own plan, and they're doing their own things, right? They're big into uh, lunar, trying to get involved in the lunar uh, lander program. Uh, they're taking people to uh, sub-or- into suborbital rides, which are just a few minutes, and uh, that is a major operation. It's hard to describe it, when, but I've been, you go down to the Kennedy Space Center, and right near the entrance to the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center is the Blue Origin facility. And it is just a massive facility. Just amazing what they've done. And the parking lot is not just full. There are employees having to park out in the grass because there's just not enough parking area. So lots of people, a big program, and they've got facilities, of course, up in the Seattle area. And um, But he's driving that. And in the, with those two individuals you know, they've got money. They've got a lot of money. So they can make calls on their own. These aren't decisions that have to go to Congress or have to go to um, some committee. If they want to do something, they're going to go do it. It's a a radical departure. It's almost like the, uh, it's like the, uh, the James Bond bad guy, right? Goldfinger or whatever. Mm -hmm. But now they're trying to, to do things that are based on their own dreams and their visions, as well as be aligned with what NASA's mission is. Of course, they want to take advantage of that money too. And there's other corporations like Sierra Space that is building a uh, a plane. It's a it's like a, a small space shuttle. It goes up on a, a SpaceX rocket but then can maneuver itself into position, dock to the space station, and then you can load it up with people or material and drop it out of orbit, and it will land like a plane on a commercial runway. So you could land anywhere in America if you wanted with this thing. Isn't Sierra doing it with uh, Sierra else? Space is doing that program is pretty much theirs. Yeah. Okay. Um, they are... Uh, working on other things too. They're trying to make a small space station that is independent 
That was the, that's, that's the dream, dream chaser, chaser is the so space we'll plane right. we'll call it, uh, but they're also something called the Unity platform um, or the Life Hab. It's a a small inflatable space station that they're going to put up in space for commercial purposes, where people can, if you want to run a bunch of experiments or make something, you can put it into this thing, and it's uh, a commercial platform. And NASA has been encouraging this. They have money, they put money out, and they are trying to get uh, corporations to come together and come up with a space platform that is only partially paid for by NASA, by taxpayer dollars, with the rest of it coming from investment and people believing that they can run a business and make money off that effort. So there's a couple of um, organizations that are uh, trying to figure that out too. Blue Origin of, is uh, one of them. With uh, Blue Origin and Sierra Space are coming together for their space station, which is called the Orbital Reef. So, so, yep. so that's all happening, and uh, that's what they would call that the Commercial Leo Destination Program or the the CLD program. At the same time, NASA is driving pretty much everything. They're the ones that are uh, putting money out there to encourage those types of efforts. They're still exploring the universe, sending probes out into the universe. They, uh, we, were, we participated in the DART mission, which was to fire a satellite at a very high speed at an asteroid to see if we could redirect it, right? To move an asteroid out of its path from hitting yeah. the Earth. And so they're doing those types of missions, which I think are things that if you didn't have a government agency doing it, nobody would do it because you're not going to make money. There's, you're not you know, striving to make a, a lot of money out of it. But it, at the same time, it takes us all forward and is perhaps necessary that we do you know, defense of the earth, for example. All of that is happening. <clears throat> and now what we're starting to see is schools um, communities like local governments, state governments, starting to say, well, well, we want to build a science and technology program to develop in our own state. And we can use NASA, we can leverage NASA dollars, leverage the excitement that comes from doing work in space. And at the same time, through these educational programs, deliver more educated, scientifically technically engineering-based students into our own community and at the same time build jobs so they'll stay here locally. So you see uh, there was a big announcement uh, that Berkeley set up something with NASA, a billion-dollar program out of the Ames uh, uh, effort uh, in Northern California. Texas and Texas A&M have a $750 million program directed at doing space-related work. And I think you're going to start to see this happening um, across America. It's almost uh, going back to the Apollo days where businesses all over America contributed. Businesses all over America are still contributing to the space program. I think that part is kind of invisible, but now it's starting to become more entrenched and more uh, collaborative with local universities and with local and state governments. That's a, that is an exciting thing to be a part of, to see that happen, because you, you can tell there's momentum building. People are getting engaged, and it can only be for the better for America, as far as I'm concerned. At the same okay. time, you still have some of the other um, big players like Japan, 
uh, Russia and Roskomos and um, uh, the European Union with uh, the European Space Agency, Canada, they're still engaged and they're doing their own things. And at the same time, other countries that were not what we would think of as mainstream players in space, like Thailand or the UAE or Israel, they have their own programs and there are ways for them to engage. Maybe they don't build a full space station, but they commit to building a uh, airlock and a piece yeah, of piece one, of, but for that, they it. then yeah. can send their astronauts up and they can participate, right? And for some of these things, like for our toilet, we kind of look at it, hey, if you come up with a really good design for toilet, anytime you send people into space, you're going to have to send a toilet. That's, those are, that's a mission critical function. And that's a piece of business you could own forever if you were really good at it, right? Uh, the the, Chi the Chinese space agency has brought on many alliances recently to help them in their efforts. So yes, there are a, a lot yes. of different activities going on. Yes, and that's another countries. way that it's happening. As you see, you know, the Japanese are kind of worried about what happens when the space station comes to end of life in 2030 or 2035, whenever it is, they want to know that there's a place for them. <laughs> I love that. Well, I moved it out again. If I worked for uh, Boeing, that's exactly what I would be doing, right? I think Boeing, just sure, add, yeah, just five, what's five years? Five um, <clears throat> yeah, what's five years? Because it, you've got several projects that are going on simultaneously from Axiom right. Space, from VAST, uh, from the Star Lab. All of those are, are trying to compete for that positioning. There's an economic challenge with how do you make those work financially? You're, you're actually right. Yeah. So there's all those other so, little players, a lot of, you know, dot-com billionaires who are stepping so, up and, you know, starting their own small space uh, um, ship. Yeah. The, the, one of the, one of the founders yes. of Ripple started a company. They have yeah. about 200 employees today. Uh, so when you and I, one of the things we did talk about before, and I want your take on it now that you've brought all of this up as we talked about astrobotics and the the failure of the ability for them to drop the lander on the moon. I'd love your take because you just gave all the positive sides of things moving forward, but there is discussion because NASA did move their launch date out a year, 25 to 26. Uh, and some people argue that's great. They're, they're doing things right. But other people are saying, no, they've been doing it wrong for quite some time. Now you've got the astrobotics uh, failure. We've had Firefly have some misses. Uh, how do you take <coughs> that side of the equation when it comes to risk? And we will be having, by the way, we will have on our podcast a one of the largest space insurance companies, uh, companies that do space insurance on our podcast. So we will talk about that another time. But what do you when you take? You're adding a lot of risk when you have these. You are. You're taking on a lot of risk. First of all, doing work in space is extremely difficult. And I know that SpaceX makes it look routine. That is an extreme achievement in itself. The fact that they have done that is just, for me, is mind boggling, I think for a lot of people. But if you go back to the beginning, even for SpaceX, there were failures. There were a lot of failures. They came you know, very close to just calling it quits. And uh, we have to understand that that is part of the situation. For me, whether it's uh, Astrobotic or Varda is another one. They're a, uh, a free flyer that um, is trying to do things that are uh, similar to some of the things that we're trying to do. Um, they were unable to bring their uh, space 
craft back. And for me, even for someone who is a competitor to my organization, that is a loss. We want people to be successful. We will mm-hmm. all benefit, right? What is it? Um, to win, um, yes. A rising yeah. tide ri- raises all ships, right? And we're, we look at it that way. We want these people to be successful. So for the astrobotic thing, it's actually, I think, um, very unfortunate and disappointing at the same time. Um, it is really difficult the achievements that were made by going to the moon in the 60s and early 70s, <clears throat> you, you don't understand how what an amazing achievement it was until you find. So, but you, you're, you're, you're stepping around, you're out of your pitter pattering around, there's discretion for it. In the ni- 1960s, we, 1970s, we went mm-hmm. to the moon multiple times. We were able to do it. That when the, when the Indian space agency uh, was trying to land, it didn't happen. When uh, astrobotics doesn't happen, and I, why is a really interesting question for a lot of individuals. If we had done it before and we were able to do it many times, why can't we do it today with more technology, more advancements? But before you answer that, was I'd like to, you, I love you use the word space is difficult because space is not hard, Earth is hard, space is harsh, it's a difficult environment. But all the challenges that astrobotic faced were challenges they faced on the thinking on Earth. It was capital, it was materials, it was time, it was policy, it was process, it was all of those things. We have a deep gravity well. What makes space hard is that you have to do it all on Earth and then you apply it out there, which is a harsh environment. environment. So that's kind of the way we say it. So I love that you use the word difficult. So what do you think about all of these organizations that 50 years ago we did it, why? I, I'm. Yeah. So, um, question. I, again, I think what we did 50 years ago was an amazing achievement, and the fact that it all wor- that it worked, yeah, is is really remarkable. At the same time, it the same challenges are there, and some, you know, in the case of the astrobot, all it takes is one thing, one seemingly insignificant thing to fail, and yeah. that takes down the whole the whole program. But you've 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 probably been with the Smithsonian. There's a Smithsonian yes. exhibit for space. You've probably seen these things. What they put up there is the equivalent of a what do you call it? Um, you have a car, and if someone was next to you in yes. a go kart, they when you look at it, you say, "Oh my god, it's a go kart! This is it's like a go kart. My car is better than this." and Where's the disconnect? How did the go-kart make it and not the Ferrari? Yeah. And I love Ferrari, so uh, yeah, but Ferrari, yeah. Uh, I'm not, right, I'm right. not and you're not saying the Ferraris break down. Bad We're not saying that. No. No, no, no. Actually, I've worked with yeah. Ferrari. I've raced Ferraris in New Zealand. Unbelievable company, unbelievable yes. cars. I, I love them. They're they are my favorite brand. That said, but for sometimes uh, let's sometimes back over uh, to making a go-kart run and work is simpler. And and we're adding certain complexities, right? So yeah, I don't know. It's a very tough. It's a very tough thing thing to to say. And I think they're still trying to figure out what went wrong. Uh, but as a scientist, the I'm kind of I expect things to fail, and I learn from that, right? You learn from iteration, and um, I think. For Astrobotic, I'm worried because I'm afraid they won't be able to iterate. They've done this. They they flew it. It didn't work. They 
It's, it's a, a huge, it's a huge, challenge, huge for them. challenge for them. Um, and then what do they get? 130 million or something was part, part of the funding. So is, are people number. going to go back and look at it? Because part of this experiment is not just launching the rocket. It's the process and the uh, infrastructure and the approach of having a small independent company try to do this for you. And that's something that's going to have to be uh, reviewed and looked at. I don't know if it's the small independent company. I th there's got to be another fly in the ointment that's not working because we're having multiple failures in different places. And are we not sharing the right information with one another? Have you ever heard the concept stone yes. soup? There's a parable called stone soup. It's uh, two, two individuals go into a village. They have no food, no money. Guy walks up to a door, knocks on it and says, can you give me a pot? I want to make some stone soup. The woman says, stone soup? He says, yeah, just need a pot. So she said, I got to see this, gives him a pot. He puts some water in it, puts some rocks in it. And then he's testing and everybody in the neighborhood's coming around saying, what's, what is this? What are they doing? And he says, he tastes it and everything. How is it? He says, hmm, probably a little bit of salt. And the guy says, oh, I got some salt. And they put a little salt in and he tastes this is a lot better, but maybe some carrots says, woman, I've got some carrots. She runs back, bring back some carrots. Maybe potatoes would help. And next thing you know, everybody's contributing right. to the soup and the soup works. What happened? Are, are we mm. too disconnected? Are we really trying to be so involved in making commercial application? Are we so interested in going to the moon? Yeah, there's something that multiple times we were able to go to the moon with go-karts. And for the explanation, we went all the way back to the deniers. Is how did we go back then? I would, I would, I would layer one more thing on there. That um, you, 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 you talked sure, about the ahead. commercial I'm, I'm, and we're kind of um, not networked, right? We're trying to do things on these individual little setups. I would also say that the amount of um, resources that were applied – you know, during the Apollo missions, we were on an annual basis, probably almost 2% of the gross domestic product was going into Apollo mm -hmm. and the NASA program. So, but we have yeah, all those so lessons. Already. I think we have all, all those lessons, but a lot of the challenges, even though, you know, Hey, we learned this when you go to apply it, um, there are still problems that arise, even though, you know, it's there. You know, experiments, you, you know, the things that you know doesn't mean that you've solved it all completely. We're, we're trying to do some experiments right now, and um, we're running into a challenge where we're using all the hardware works, all the pieces work, but we're starting to see that when it's all put together, there are, um, because it's a complex system, there are conflicts that weren't anticipated, right? And yeah. it's causing us to, okay, we got to step back and redo this. That's an easy thing to do if you can retrieve it and just make the changes or whatever. But in the case of like Astrobotic, um, yeah, they found a problem. There was a conflict yeah, or you know, an issue, but it's a huge expensive experiment. But, and that's yeah. where Earth is hard because it actually happened on Earth. It was the design. It was the lack of anticipation of that happening, not having two different fuel uh, capabilities because they ran maybe it was by separation or partition but it was an earth challenge what did we miss down here that didn't allow it to, to work up there but there's a well it, it baffles me it actually baffles me this whole thing that we i i went to the uh the 
Washington, D.C. I went to the Smithsonian to look at these things. And I remember coming back and saying, oh, my God. I mean, the, the walls of the rockets no, were nothing special. There was nothing. They, there was nothing. No, there's, no, there's, some, there's, there's, nothing. A, there's a great video um, of an astronaut on the moon next to his lunar lander. This is one of the later missions. And you're watching the video, and you see him yanking on the side of the lander. It is a funny thing because it's like, what is that guy doing? He's just yank, he's yanking again and again. And what he was trying to do was pull his foldable all-wheel drive electric car out of the side. It's it's stuck in a little compartment folded up. You have to pull it out and unfold this little electric car, right? And it's just the funniest <laughs> thing to watch. And you see how basic and fundamental, but at the same time, the only working all-wheel drive foldable electric cars we ever made are still on the moon. Right. It's a crazy thing. So yeah. there were achievements. I've, you know, we're talking about what didn't work. Hey, uh, you know, Apollo 13 had its challenges, right? There were things that didn't always that work. Yep. So uh, I think that's okay. part of it. At the same time, going back to your point about making mistakes on the ground, we um, don't always have all the information or we're not always able to put it all together. And back at the Smithsonian, there were, and I probably still have them displayed, there were, um, two Coke, it was a Coke can and a Pepsi can that were designed with a special top to be used by astronauts in space so that they would be able to partake in having a Coke and a smile or have a cold Pepsi while they're in space. And it was, you know, a big deal. And they both had advertising programs based on this. It was fantastic until the astronauts actually tried to drink the Coke and the Pepsi. And then... And the problem is on uh, Earth, going back to our discussions about why science is different, on Earth, the contents of your stomach are all held down. And any gas that is evolved comes mm -hmm. up and you burp it out. But in space, the contents of your stomach are a jumble. It stays. Yeah. Stays in so you drink that. Yeah. And when you have to burp, everything comes out. So, and now, uh, so, so yeah, yes. you're not in and now think about it. You would think that everybody would know that, that this would be expected and we should have, but they didn't. They did not consider that until they did it. And we learned from it. So when you go to space now, um, they're not drinking Coke and Pepsi, right? They're drinking a lot of coffee. Yeah. I, I yeah, you know when you know when you have your pen and you're kind of turning it up and over and over and over and you're flipping it because you're trying to get some your mind around something. I'm, my head is turned sideways and I'm saying to myself, "There's something missing. There's just something missing." And I don't. I, I, I'm. I've got my own thoughts. So we're not going to go into all of them, but there's just if we've done it before. We do know about the Coke bottle. We do know about microgravity. We do know about all the micrometeorites. We do know we have Whipple shields today. We have 3D printing technology to reduce weight. We have different engines we could use. There's just, if someone was to travel forward in time from 1969 and to today, they'd say, Oh my God, you guys yeah. must have look at your gone computers. Everywhere. Look at your all these materials and yeah. Yeah. L look at what you've got. I mean, I've never seen a car like that. I've never seen what are you holding in your hand? Oh, we can communicate with everybody. Actually, our kids don't knock on the front door anymore. They call each other from outside. And you say, Really? Like, how does the signal get there? Oh, there's things in orbit that we 
communicate with these satellites and we have ground systems and book and they say so where are you are are you on have you gone to venus yet have you gone to mars have you gone to and they said no 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 you guys are the last ones there so again just a it's a baffling question so let's get on to this next one i guess the goals of science and and we've kind of alluded to this uh, in our conversation, but ultimately the goals of science and space are, you know, to learn about what's happening in space and to bring that learning back. But for me, the real, the real goal is to find benefits that we can bring back down to the people on earth, whether that's a perspective of how we look at our earth, or if it is actually crystals for the pharmaceutical industry. Um, you, you had mentioned early in the conversation about the uh, BFF, the biofabrication facility that my organization has built and is operating on the space station. And uh, just last year, we uh, printed a meniscus for Uniform Services University it was made of uh, stem cells and matrix, and it is a meniscus. Right now, if you tear your meniscus, you don't get an implant or whatever. You just let it heal with scar tissue, and you go on with your life. It's never the same. Yeah. But if there was a way that we could actually make a meniscus and using your own stem cells, that would have a potential huge benefit to people and their ability to function over their their lifespan. And there's other tissues. We're right now in the process of printing cardiac tissue. We're ho- hopefully, ultimately, we'd love to print something like a heart. But at this point, we're just trying to print a very small heart patch so that somebody who maybe had um, damaged part of their heart tissue with a heart attack or what have you, that we could come in and have a vascularized piece of heart tissue again with their own cells. So there would not be a rejection. It would be their own body part that would just been made. And what going to space allows us to do is to print things in three dimensions without having to build it around some architecture. Everything You can stack things up that normally on earth would just puddle out and if we take them, we print them into the right, si- right size and shape and what have you, and put it in an incubator, we find that it sort of gels, almost like gelatin. It will get to a point where it is firm enough to be able to sur- survive re-entry and exposure to the 1G environment terrestrially, and that it could be used. And initially, we're just looking at ways to develop models for the pharmaceutical industry or for somebody to use for testing. But ultimately, we believe that there's a a future where tissue therapy and organ therapy um, replaces or at least subsidizes the current uh, uh, therapies using organ donation or what have you. So um, that is the goal of what we're doing in SACE is to do things that will benefit people. And I believe if we do things that are important enough, um, it will work out from an economic standpoint, right? That there will be value in it. And it goes back to something we talked about earlier, which was that um, you you can't take tons and tons of material in space. So you have to think about not just the value of the thing you're doing, but the amount of mass it's going to take for you to deliver it. So things like uh, crystals, seed crystals, all I need is a thimbleful. And they can have a huge value. You know, there's pharmaceutical products that are worth billions of dollars a year. 
And we also look at things like um, tissue therapy and organ donation therapy as being having a huge value, both financially, but also benefit to hum- humanity. So those are the types of things we look at. And I think that is the, um, the vision, the goal for science and space, is if you do this right, it will work financially and will provide the benefit to humanity that we need. So that's your perception of the directive of what the purpose is. And it's a healthy one. I, I, I associate with that. From eight years of doing this, I would not, I would say that the majority of people that I've worked with in Beyond Earth, it is not that. The, that the goal is not that or that we have not achieved that? The what do they think not, the, goal the goal is not that. It's going to distant mm-hmm. galaxies. It's going beyond Earth. It's exploring. It's that's where it's always science, research, and exploration. It's it's about reaching out to the stars and and being able to be a multidisciplinary, a multiplanetary species and saving the human yeah. species. You've heard that phrase from someone a lot, you know, so that we have a duplicate version of ourselves because we're going to destroy ourselves. And it's it it's not that narrative, and often it is. Economics mm-hmm. want to make a lot of money. You, if you listen, we have a sixty-some-odd podcast now, something in that range. I don't know the exact number. You will hear that the majority of them that that tonal is not; it doesn't come through. And absence of saying it means it's not a focus. So you could say, "Well, no, no, that's what they were thinking," but the absence of not putting it in or saying it is also saying it. And you have articulated from the beginning that your interest is that even the work that you've done at that organization was to make sure that the innovations turn back on Earth. And for us, it's improve life on Earth for all species, is that those innovations happen. So I'm questioning why do you, you said it that way, is that your interpretation of the majority of people you meet. So I'm gonna, I'll, um, I've got a couple of things there. So first of all, I think you're right that a mo- majority of people look at it from the standpoint of like the Star Trek. We're going to explore the universe. That's and they're they're um, that's kind of the vision. Um, the whole how do we generate value is kind of secondary, and in a lot of ways, that's because it is not straightforward. It is very difficult, and it's never really been done. There's only a few things that have been made in space mm-hmm. that were done for a purpose that had benefit on Earth. In fact, I've got one of them right here in my office, and it was it's a it's on a plaque, and it says "Made in Space aboard Space Shuttle Challenger," and it was done back in the early '80s, '83 or so, and it is these tiny plastic spheres that were created um, as a way um, for like NIST or one of the government agencies to use. Um, as a model for perfect spherical objects, this is how a, these are perfectly spherical because they did not they they were made without the influence of gravity. So there's very few things, and it's very hard yep. for people to get around that. And what you what we find for the most part are companies coming to us who have generated small free flying little laboratories, or they're going to coming to us saying, "Hey, we're willing to sell you space so you can do whatever you want to do." And that's what you see. That's the traditional, yeah. hey, if you looked at all of the um, space um, industry, the aerospace industry uh, worldwide, 
95% of everybody is all working to make satellites that are either for communications or observation or for someone like me to come and utilize. That's the easy thing to do. Put something on a rocket, launch it in orbit, and get paid to do that. And um, there's value in that. The problem is we need to figure out how to generate value. Otherwise, we can't pay them for the ride. So there's um, so when I talk about the um, the where like what the real value is and where it's going, we're trying to get to the point where the things that Elon Musk has done very well, uh, sending supplies to space station, um, are paid for by someone other than the uh, taxpayers. Because ultimately, there's going to be a point where the American taxpayer is going to continue to make um, trade-offs. Hey, you know, are we willing to spend uh, another $20 billion when we could spend that on some other thing? And um, I think the big push on the NASA side, at least in part, is to say, what are those things that we, that we can generate value doing and offload some of those costs? Not just for their purposes, um, you know, so they can offload costs, but also in a way so they can redeploy their own funds to go to Mars. Right now, they're spending, you know, a billion plus dollars a year just to keep the space station in orbit functional and operational. They would love to have some of that money back and get to Mars in 2035 or sooner if they could. So I think that when I talk about like where it's going, yes, you're correct. This is a small piece of it, but it is an important piece. The thing that we, I believe that we're going to find a way to make money in space and it's going to be like a gold rush. It's going to be like the California gold rush. You're going to have all these people trying to get in on the action, get up there, and then slowly the federal government will be able to offload some of uh, the, um, you know, the cost of doing the day-to-day stuff that they're supporting now. Okay. Okay. Uh, you have the next one. What does so this mean? All of this effort, hearkening back to all the benefits that we talked about coming from the space program, those continue. There are uh, technological, scientific, and I would say even um, political and, and social benefits from us working together on these bigger projects to go to space, to do science in space, to look back at our planet. Um, and you see uh, individuals, communities, countries, businesses coming together to do bigger and better things together. I think that's one of the pieces of things like Star Trek that it was humanity that stepped out. It was uh, the Earth that was, you know, where Starfleet was. It, um, I think there's, there's something about that that we'll see in these coming years. Yeah, but didn't the didn't the Vulcans have to come because they saw a guy out in space hitting um, hyperspace, and then the Vulcans? The Vulcans, came. yeah, and the Vulcans, the but Vulcans, right? but uh, and, yeah, and then they and, gave and the helped, technology and helped, and right? Helped but it was it, so. the you know yeah. Starfleet <laughs> was a uh, Earth based program. Starfleet was humanity and the R step out. And, and of course, that's um, done for a lot of reasons in that show. But I think that's part of the benefit. I think it's also, like you said, um, whatever happened with the astrobotic system, there 
people are going to learn from it and the next one will be better and the next one will be better. And there will be a day where we're going to the moon on a fairly routine basis. Yeah, we, we didn't make the cutoff that um, uh, Stanley Kubrick thought we'd hit right in uh, 2001 or whatever, but um, we are going to get there. And by pushing ourselves and doing things that are on the edge, we get better. We, and we learn and our lives will be improved by this in some ways that are totally obvious, like GPS, and then in other ways, you know, that are um, nuanced, but are still important to humanity as a whole. And that I, for me, that is, it is so inspirational just to be a part of that and to go to meetings where people are talking about the most mundane things about how water behaves on the space station, or um, how do we um, how do we build a toilet that will work and works every time, and people don't have to worry about? Um, it does. It takes us forward and it makes us better. Well, you uh, the, the there's a uh, Globe Union is one of the largest toilet manufacturers in China and area, and I've worked with them, and uh, you know they do the same thing. They sit around and yeah. say, "How do we make a yeah. better toilet?" <laughs> they do. They do the exact same thing. They say, How do we make a better toilet? And I know because we have their toilets and they're phenomenal. Uh, reduced water consumption, better spinning cycle, fewer parts. They do all sorts of things. And they, they do a lot of subcontracting out uh, private labeling. So, yes, we, we do ask these questions. And what you're doing, you call it mundane, yes. is what people do in almost every industry. How do we how do we make a boat work faster? How do we make a printer print with less ink? How do we make a car more efficient or more comfortable or a bed to help us to get more sleep? So you're doing the, the things I would that you go love, one step and that's further. great. And I would say so far, sure. and it's really my fault, but in our conversation, I've really talked about what um, is happening in space and what it will do for us. But what we also have to consider is that through this program, Astrobotic is a little company in Pittsburgh that we, normal people like myself, others like us are all contributing to this effort. We are all going to have a hand in on this in some way. And it's, I had a summer intern and she as um, a high school student designed an experiment that went to space station when she was uh, a senior in high school. Think about that. A senior in high school sent an experiment to the space station. And she would get together with others of her friends, these other girls who did this. And they were girls. They were not women. They were, you know, high school students. And they talk about it like like they yeah. would talk about going to the mall. It's like it's normalized. It's normalized. It's it's for certain people. For, for, for certain so people. I think it's you're gonna see that right. that more and more people are engaged. Either they um, are participating, like they're working for a company, or they produce something that is part of that program, or they're principal investigators at universities with their students who are coming to do projects with us and people like us, or they are just normal everyday citizens who are uh, engaged just by observation and understanding what's happening and 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 doing just like you said, calling it out. Hey, why is it? Why is this so hard? Or why did that fail? Or why are those people getting to go and not me? And you know, we 
if you go through on the website, you're the website you created, you look at like the plans when we're going to have um, 60 people or 1600 people on the moon. Who are those yeah. people? Are they at this point, if you want to fly, um, you know, on a, a private astronaut mission, you either have to come up with 50 million bucks or have somebody who does it on your behalf, but there will be yeah. a day and it's not too far off where uh, you're going up, not because you paid the money, but because you had a skill they needed. Hey, we. So, and I love that you're dimensionalizing yeah. it. So I'm going to add to it if I can. We have the first paper that's been written on mirth by a professor, uh, Daniele, out of the University of Messina. We have a, another person out of Amsterdam who's the foremost expert on complex variation by design. He's writing a small paper, and then he's going to write an, e an academic paper on how Project Moon Hut, what he calls is complex variation by design on steroids. We have individuals who are, uh, I can't mention some of the names that are they're working on, but they're working on things that they had never mm. thought of before. And they're coming in not for the space side. But you think about it, economics is not space the same way. It's complex variation by design is the concept of taking something and creating it so someone else could understand something. So you create an environment for someone to understand something else. And Project Moon Hut is that where we're trying to say we have eight people, we have 90, 578, 1,644 on the moon. And you could see it in that, that, that graphic that was brilliantly created by Marcus and Andreas. And... Yes, what we're trying to do is normalize it, but not normalize it as space. We're trying to normalize it as Earth. So you, you, the reason I brought that up is you said astronauts. You don't talk much about cosmonauts or um, the <clears throat> taikonauts or other names. And we have this, when we use those words, we separate people. We will have, we're, we're using the word spacers. Because when you get on a plane, you are, you're a chemist, you get on a plane, you're not a pilot. 50, uh, 100 years ago, if you were in a plane, you were a pilot. Then they became passengers, mm -hmm. but people call them astronauts. No, you're not an astronaut. You're a, pot, you're a passenger and you have a role to be a chemist on the International Space Station. So we tried to come up with all the words we came up. We said, these are just people who are educated. They've, got a, they've, they've gone to th three weeks of training. They understand the environment, like getting your license, and they will be spacers because they won't have a designation when they will get there. They will be a spacer who's responsible for yeah. They geog would, they would call them mission call specialists. Or, um, That's what NASA would call them. And so in our word, so the yeah, but the word mission, if you've ever mission to means do something, go someplace yeah. and come back and come back. We are creating a box of the roof and a door and a moon, a home. And that home is where mm. we will live in perpetuity, that that is now a new ecosystem. So when we use words that separate, we're going on a space mission. Well, no, no, no. I'm going to be there for six months and I'm going to be working on this and I'm an engineer or I'm a scientist, I'm a researcher, I'm a builder, I'm a whatever. So but the question that I had is if we don't become more globally inclusive in our conversation, how, do, how is that going to lay out? where 70% of the world's population still lives under 10 US dollars a day. Uh, we have challenges happening around the world. How would you suggest that we change that dialogue so it's not protectionistic, but inclusive? So part of it, 
um, there's a, there you know cultural backgrounds play into this, right? As as an American, I see everything from that perspective. Um, and there's there's two parts. There's the national perspective, and just like you said, there's parts of the world that are living very different lives because of where they are. It's not because um, they're not in the U.S. or just from a different part of the world, and maybe it's the government, maybe it's different conditions that lead to that. We did have a, a conversation with some people at SpaceX to add another uh, dimension to this. We were talking about uh, astronauts and how we um, – uh, clothe them. And this was done with a, a company that provides a type of clothing for people who do extreme things like extreme athletes. And uh, they said that they, this company said, well, we look at astronauts as a kind of extreme athlete and we want to produce the clothing and the, um, you know, the day-to-day materials for their garments, whether it be a shoe or a spacesuit or just, you know, their underwear and the person from SpaceX said, no, that's not how we look at these people. The people that we're sending to Mars, they're right. farmers. We're sending farmers. And the reason is, yes. is because a farmer can fix something out in the field. They have to be able to do that. They know how to feed themselves. They live a different kind of life. So I think you're absolutely yeah. right. We, For different situations, the people will have a different kind of tag and that's because they're doing a different type of thing and there are different types of people. Right. They'll be, ma- they'll right. be maintenance worker that, on, uh, in the moon. That's right. I mean, in, how many years was every yeah, that, everyone so, who went on a Apollo mission, or especially early on towards the end, it changed, but they were all like military pilots and, and on the Russian side too, right? right. They were all military. So you, yes, absolutely. Today, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bezos ships people up. They don't have to go. They go through a little bit of training, but you don't have no. extreme. You got William Shatner going, going up, up, right? Their, yeah, <laughs> right, right. They're they're not extreme athletes. So that global inclusion. If we have challenges on the planet, and I I love your angle, yet we need. I think that in. We had one person call us, and I can't mention where they're from. And the person said, "You need to have the military on the moon with you." And I'm like, "Huh? Oh, someone's going to try to blow it up. Someone's going to try to stop this. You're going to have terrorism up there." I'm like, "Geez, we're, we everything right. is about protectionism of the American way." And I not I, I am an American. That's nothing to say that I'm not. I can't. I was born here. Yet the solution is inclusionary because we live on one planet, which is partially what we're supposed to be saying, but we don't act that way. Yeah. Right. Isn't that the, everybody says the overview effect it well, hasn't, it hasn't worked really no, uh, worked I, in the way it was professed. Yeah. There's reasons. But, there's so, reasons for that, that are maybe beyond our control at this point, but I, I'm a, I play the long game. I look at this from the, from the long, for a couple, in a couple ways. First of all, Finding a way to go to Mars and build a colony of Mars is not a solution to our problems on Earth. Just like you mentioned earlier, a lot of the problems of space are going to be things that we've got to solve on Earth, right? They're problems on Earth first. So I think doing, talking about this now and having this conversation, it's like saying, hey, if you were to set up a colony, how would you want that to be set up? Starting all again with all the things we've learned from colonies in the in the New Americas, and um, you know all of that. What 
what have we learned to ensure that what we do in space will be successful? If we can't do it well on Earth, if we can't get along on Earth, if we can't save the environment on Earth, going to Mars is not going to save us. Going to Mars is like trying to live in Antarctica in the winter and no atmosphere. That's, that's what it's like. So if you can't make things work on this beautiful gem of a planet we've got, then we've got much more serious problems. At the same time, we can leverage this effort and the yeah. science and the, the, just like you said, the, the need to come together and to work together to our advantage. I, I'm an optimist in that way. Well, yeah, I, I, we're working on it. If, if we didn't think it would work, we wouldn't be working on it. There's a, there's a woman, a Violetta, out of uh, Europe that we're working with. And at one point, tossed out to her that we're working on what would be the governance model. You know, there's socialism, communism, democracy. And if you've ever looked it up, which I don't recommend you do, there are so many different versions of isms out there and versions of, demo- of, of everything, from republics to you name it. It's a lot more than I ever thought of. And I shared with her what we want to do is say, what would it potentially be like, like you're saying, a new group of people who are they're not self-sustainable on the moon. They're sustainable. We're going to be shipping things back and forth like every time through history. Oh, yeah. There was always goods and services moved. So how? what do we – what type of – what do we call it? And we've had these – uh, the first one I came up with, neoclassical mirthism or whatever, something of that nature. And she said, no, no, we found this doesn't work. That doesn't work. And she became so engrossed in this. She almost jumped through the screen. It was brilliant because trying to figure out how we would operate as a human species with, within mirth changes the dialogue. And that comes yes. back to the blue marble. How do we, we – it's not going to happen in beyond earth. We don't have enough mass of people, volume of people. It's going to happen as we change on Earth, and that's how we get mirth. We don't get mirth and then create Earth. We create, we change Earth over the course of the timeline, and in doing so, it allows yes. us to achieve yes. it. Does yes. that make sense? And I think it's not the journey; it's, it's the, the des- journey. It's not the yes. destination; it's the journey. And, and the journey changes you, right. and it makes you better. And that's. Uh, that is what I think this is all doing for us. And it only works to make us all better if we start to get more people engaged in it. So going to your point, and that's not just more Americans. It is. It's more people from outside to see it, to be a part of it. And we, I think, as Americans are better. That's why America's so great is that it's people from all over. It bring we we have a challenge yeah. of hope on this planet today, and what what we can create if we sh- demonstrate what the things and I and I loved speaking with you because you do have this optimism inside of you, is that we're changing the narrative for the entire globe of ten billion people by twenty fifty, and what does that mean? And we by giving people hope, they don't go right. to the bad side, right? The dark side, or whatever you want to call it. They they then build for a new future, and we don't do enough of that. So, I've got to say, Ken, this was absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate the, you spending the time, uh, even with the <laughs> challenges of losing power and the tree falling on the lines and uh, and all of that. I do appreciate. We do appreciate you taking. Well, the thanks time for having me, David. So this is awesome. So much. Really enjoyed talking with you. So. 
yeah, this is great. And I, I, I'm, I'm serious <laughs> about the toilet and the naming, serious about the names of the people that you recommend. Uh, and we need to talk more about how uh, Redwire, because you're fantastic. I think we have uh, yeah. like 700 employees, something like that. Uh, I'd love to find a way that Redwire could become a part of Project Moon Hut because we have a lot of organizations all under NDA, all working private quietly in the background so we can move this forward collectively. So so want to thank you for taking, for everybody listening in, want to thank you for taking the time to listen in today. And we do hope that you learn something that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others. Again, the Project Moon Hut Foundation is where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a home through the accelerated development of an earth and space-based ecosystem, and then to turn the innovations and the paradigm-shifting thinking from the endeavor back on earth to improve how we live on earth for all species. Please do go check out the, t the videos on the website. Do click on, and it is fabulous, the 40-year plan. I think you would agree, Ken, it is a yep. fabulous design. And uh, Ken, what's the single best way to get I would say just uh, uh, reach out to me via email. Um, I, I respond to all my emails at my email is Ken Savin, K E N yeah. dot S A V I N at redwire space, all one word, dot com. Okay. And for me, I'd love to speak with you. You could reach me at David at moonhut.org. You could also reach us at on Twitter at, at Project Moonhot or at Goldsmith if you want to get directly with me. LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, we're all there. We can all communicate and keep moving things together. So that said, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.